Hello there, story folk. This is just a note to say that there's probably a bit of an error in the following episode. I'm fairly certain that at various points I have referred to King Aetes as Medea's father, which is incorrect. They are in fact brother and sister. The relationship between them um, usually fits into the mould that existed between fathers and daughters in this tale, so I probably just slipped into thinking about that when I wasn't thinking too hard about what I was uh, saying. So, uh, yeah, I will be correcting that at some point, but I can't at the moment because I'm away on a work placement. So that is just to let you know that I am aware of the error and it will be changed in the future. Apart from that, Really hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lauren Legend, produced by Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Lore and Legend brings you myths, legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We're telling stories the way that they're meant to be told. And we do it in the style of traditional storytelling, enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This season of Lore and Legend is called The Gates of Dream. Exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth, the gods and the spirits of the Greek underworld, and the lands of dream death and darkest fate. And this episode comes to you thanks to the contributions of our subscribers, Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell and Shawnee Basket. Thanks to all of you wonderful story folk for your generosity and your enthusiasm in supporting the podcast and allowing us to make our stories. Please consider joining our story folk in supporting the podcast by donating to us one time or regularly. For details, visit our website and click Support Us. In this episode, Odysseus relates the history of his time on the island of the sorceress, Kirke. And here's the legend of another sorceress, Medea, and what happened when she dared to use her magic on Selene, the titan goddess of the moon. From storyteller Rick Scott, and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo and Caleb Hennessy, This is episode 11, Hex the Moon. By now, night was falling. The fires had begun to dwindle in the hearths, and all the shadows were drawing in, closer to the mountain fortress, closer to the king and to his servants. They had all left their chambers and they stood beneath the colonnade that ran between the fort's inner and outer walls. And clad now in his mystical armour, Odysseus stood before the Hecatean, the sacred pillar of Hecate, the triple goddess. The sky was moonless and pitch black above them, because it was the night of the dark moon and of Hecate's supper, when a table was set up before her altar at the crossing where the roads around and through the fortress met. It was furnished with uncooked eggs, fish, barley cakes, and with bundled stalks of leek and onion. A 
And then one of the hounds was led out, padding down the line of soldiers and servants, and as it went past, each one of them brushed their hands over its fur to wipe their sins onto him. Odysseus himself scooped up the dog in his great arms and laid him on the altar, held him while the priest sliced his throat. And then the king himself ran his fingers through the blood and the entrails of the animal, weighed the organs in his slick palms. Then he and all the men bowed their heads as the priests doused them with water, and the servants filled and lit their senses and spread thick and sweet incense through all the rooms of the fortress. And Odysseus spoke these words. I burn for you this spice, O child of Zeus, dark shooter, heavenly one, goddess of hearts, who roams the mountains, goddess of crossroads, O never and nocturnal and infant, goddess of dark, quiet and frightful, O you who have your meal amid the graves, Night, darkness, broad chaos. You stand at the crossroads of life. Your shining key can open all doors. You cross all boundaries, Hecate, goddess of the three ways, Titanus, who stood with the gods. And then when the words were said, they all withdrew. And they sealed the doors of the fortress, leaving the offerings to Hecate and to her roaming train of the dead. Odysseus himself, when he sat down at his dinner table, ate simple fare, bread, water, wine, milk and honey. And as he sat with his back to the hearth, in the long shadow of his chair, his eating was silent and sullen. Until at long last he looked towards the serving boy and he said, Perhaps I should pray instead to Hecate rather than Athena. The boy came forward to clear away the food that was left. Odysseus watched him. Wine milk and honey odysseus said the food that we give to the dead still the boy did not answer but odysseus continued anyway did you know boy that i had once lain in bed with one of hecate's nieces For on my voyages, when I was lost at sea, my sleek ship came to the island of Kirke. She of the fair tresses, a dread goddess, who nonetheless speaks in a voice as soft as we humans do. From a high vantage on the island, I saw smoke rising up from the forest. Within that hushed and shady woodland, my crew found the house of built of polished stone and standing high upon the mountain where all the valley could be seen. 
and padding gently through its halls and portals were many wild beasts, mountain wolves, and lions. And yet they showed none of their wildness, but were instead only soft and sweet. They came around, brushing up against all my men, seeking caresses, although they were frozen in fear at the thought of what these animals could do to them. And then, echoing from the floors within the hall, we heard the sweet voice of Kirke as she sang. She was spinning a great imperishable web, such as only a goddess could weave, beautiful in its pattern, fine in its colour, glorious to behold. Now it was only because the god, swift-footed Hermes, waylaid me, that I escaped the fate of my men. For when they entered the house, she turned them by her witch's art from men into swine. Hermes said that Athena had sent him to warn me that Kirke was a goddess and to give me a magical root and flower which he swore would protect me and which I fixed around the pin of my purple red cloak. Going into the house of Kirke, I saw that his words were true. It was like something from a dream or rather a nightmare. For going inside, I saw that it was true. They had been changed. They had the heads, the voices, the bristles, the shape of swine. And yet by looking in their eyes, I could see that their minds remained unchanged, even as they were before. And they were penned in cages, snorting and weeping. Before them, the sorceress had flung down mast and acorns, such things as wallowing swine are made to feed on. Then I saw her. The goddess was beautiful, her hazel hair bound in artful tresses, which rippled as they swept her shoulders. In one hand she held her rhabdos, a gleaming scepter of dark and polished wood. In the other she held a kylix bowl, and around her legs slipped the sinuous bodies of two simpering tigers, a deep purr resonating in the chambers of their throats. But it was not the tigers which threatened to mesmerize me. It was her eyes, two burning rings of yellow fire, which flowed around the black islands of her irises. As I gazed at them, those eyes narrowed, and she raised the bowl towards me, and unthinking I took it in my hands, and I swallowed down its contents in one swift draught. But the burning potion, as it washed down my throat, was cooled into water by the virtue of the white flower. And as Kirke raised her staff and began to intone a magic word, I dropped the kylix, and I grabbed her arm and I spun her around, drawing the gleaming edge of my sword up towards her throat. But as I made the motion, her body melted away from my fingers like so many ropes of sand. And in the flutter of an eye, Kirke stood between the tall pillars of a house while her tigers crouched ready to pounce on me from either side. And the goddess, she gazed at me, smiling. Surely you must be Odysseus, she said. The man 
of many tricks, whom Hermes of the Golden Wand said would come here with his swift black ship one day. Put your sword back in your belt, masterful Odysseus, for I fancy that there are better ways to make out a peace between us. And her words were true. For we began the accords with food and wine, made out terms through the exchange of sweet sentiments and stories, and the final accords we sealed within her own chambers on the beautiful bed of the goddess. And in the morning she restored my crew to their former shape, and offered us safe harbour there, for as long as we desired before resuming our journey. And we took full advantage of the goddess's offer, for we were much wearied and reduced by the torments and the trials of our voyage. And there, in the house and in the bed of Kirke, be sure I learned the many secrets of these sorcerers and witches. To be sure, through soothsayers like Calchas, I had learned already the finer points of divination, through augury and ecstasy, the flights of birds and the inspection of entrails and sacrifice. But Kirke, taught to be divination by the primal elements, by fire, by water, and also by the moon and by necromancy. And she taught me more deeply of aneroscopy, the judgment of omens and visions in dreams, and prophecy which come originally from the stars, from Koei and Phoebe, the titans who hold up the corners of heaven and who know all dreams and nativities. She said, these dreams are dark and troubling, and they are written in light and shadows. I myself, saw a terror in dreams when fate drew that sister of mine in titan blood medea to my island and to my house when jason and medea fled with the golden fleece i foresaw that they would land on these beaches by the signs of a true dream. I dreamt, as I lay in this very bed, that those wars you see around us began first to weep with tears of blood, and then to gush down in waterfalls into the gutters of the house before catching fire, so that the air swam with the blood and the smoke and I could not breathe. The dream was so strong that I had to break myself from its grasp by use of a blood chain and flee the house, gasping, my nostrils filled with the sanguine stench of the pollution. I hurried down to the harbour and I dipped my head in the sea's cold salt, cooling my feverish brow. And as I lifted my head from the water, I saw the dark hulled ship sailing toward me out of the blood-red dawn toward the place where I crouched on that beach.
the moment that I saw Jason and Medea, and the black and buzzing cloud that clung about their ears, I tasted the same scent in the air around them that I had tasted in my dream. It was the stench of kinslaying. And as the horrible visions of that dream came back to me, I wondered what tale that Medea would tell, what misdeeds she would relate. But she was my kin. And so, when the two of them knelt on my hearth and grasped me by the knees, and they laid before me a blade stained to its hilt with flesh and gore, goddess that I was, I gave the rite of cleansing, without question and I washed them of the clinging blood and the murky air. And doing so, the mordant crack of the Furies' tongues faded from about their ears, and it was safe for them to sleep again, safe from furious dreams. And it was only then, from behind her hands and weeping, that Medea related the cruel fate and grave crimes which had brought her to my hurt. For all of her life, Medea had lived in Colchis, a kingdom over the Black Sea. My brother Aetes was king of Colchis, and Medea was his daughter. From her youth, Medea was visited by Hecate herself, tutored in all her rites and mysteries, until she was grown to such mastery in the craft, mastery to rival my own that she was made High Priestess of Hecate's temple in Colchis. When her uncle, Perses, tried to wrest control of the kingdom from her father, Medea slayed him and restored Aetes to the throne. King Aetes was also keeper of a sacred treasure of Ares, the Golden Fleece, which hung from an oak in a deep and dark grove at the heart of the kingdom it was protected by a pair of Hephaestus's bronze-hoofed bulls and a great and watchful serpent, born from the black blood of Mother Earth. Now such was Medea's mastery, it was said that Hecate taught her to handle every kind of herb produced by the land and flowing water, and that with those herbs she could quench the blast of unwearied flames and stay the course of roaring rivers. Yes, it was even said that she could work her magic on the celestial bodies of heaven, that she could check the stars and chase the sacred moon from the sky. But in so presuming to lay a hex upon her, Medea drew the ire and the fury of Selene. And the goddess of the moon conspired with her sisters in heaven, with Hera, Aphrodite, and Hecate herself, to punish this impudent nymphess for her insolence. And so when Jason and his crew came to Colchis, seeking the treasure of the Golden Fleece, the king, Aetes, told the hero that he would never possess it, unless he single-handedly 
could yoke a plough of adamant to the brazen bulls, and sow the field of Ares with the dragon's teeth that filled a helmet, and pass the sleepless dragon which guarded the tree in which the fleece hung. And as Jason and his men stood before Aetes, and Medea stood by her father's throne, the demon of love, Eros, touched down unseen within the threshold of that royal court. He strung his bow, and he took from his quiver an unshot arrow, and he loosed it so that it struck Medea in the breast. The bolt burned deep down into the maiden's heart like a flame, and at once speechless amazement seized her soul at the sight of that hero, Jason. Her heart panted fast with anguish, and as flame from a brand consumes the twigs in a fire, so coiled around her heart, burning secretly, love the destroyer. And then did Mother Night draw her darkness over the earth, and all the sea sailors from their ships looked up towards the bear and the stars of Orion, and the wayfarer and the warder longed for sleep. Nor was there any more barking of dogs throughout the city, nor the sound of men's voices, but silence held sway in the blackening gloom. But no sweet sleep came to Medea, for as she rose, night opened the two gates of dreams, one the gate of truth that shone with the sheen of horn, the other the gate of deceit, the cradle of empty dreams, and passing unseen through the grey mist, like gadflies rising amongst the grazing heifers, the dreams came winging through the sleep-filled air of Colchis to gather about the bed of Medea. And at first the hue of her soft cheeks went and came, first pale, then red, as her soul melted within her at the sweetness of her pain, as Jason's face, her father's prisoner, floated before her in her sleep. But straightway more fearful dreams, more deceitful, assailed her with their dark illusions. They whispered to her that the stranger had come not for the fleece, but for her, to take her away, to make her his wife. And Medea dreamed that she herself undertook for him, for Jason, all the things that were required to gain the Golden Fleece. She dreamed that in the still air of night beneath the heavens, she donned black robes, and she kept vigil by one of the kingdom's tireless rivers until the very hour of midnight when, at the appointed time, she bathed herself in the stream. And then climbing out, she dug an earthen pit. She cut the throat of an ewe and burned its body there. 
and from a kylix she poured out fresh honey. And then, standing in the middle of the pit, she begged the grace of her aunt, Hecate. And then, she climbed out of the pit and she began to walk. But she knew she could not once look back or try to catch sight of Hecate and her hands. Then in the dream she saw herself as dawn broke, stripping herself in her chamber, anointing herself with a potion of oil and with water, and then sprinkling that same potion across the shield and the spear and the sword which she saw she carried with her. A terrible power entered into her then, unspeakable, dauntless, so that her hands and her arms and her whole body thrilled vigorously as they swelled with strength. Medea felt like a mighty warhorse, eager for the fight, ready to beat the ground with her hooves and lift her neck high, hold her ears erect. And rejoicing in the strength of her limbs, she found she had the strength to lift the heavy plates of the adamant band and to place the yoke around the necks of the brazen oxen. And driving those oxen on, she broke the hard soil of Ares' field. And the fire which belched forth from the mouths of those bulls, it did not sear her when it touched her skin. Next, Medea saw herself taking the iron helm from her father's hand, in which he kept the dragon's teeth. She sewed them into the soil of Ares' field and from the broken furrows of that field sprang forth a host of earth-born souls, bristling with their sturdy shields and double-pointed spears and shining helmets. But she, in her strength, was able to leap high up over the shields and even shrug off the iron points when they did strike. Medea took a gleaming stone and she cast it about into the middle of the soldiers. They watched it fly with their eyes, and then, all as one, they each of them died for it, battering at the others to keep them away, each one slaying the others with their weapons to possess it. Like ravening dogs, they filled the furrows to overflowing with bright blood. And Medea, she simply walked between them, to the edge of the field, and into the grove. And she lifted the golden fleece from the bough where it hung upon the tree. But then she turned, and the ever-waking serpent that guards the oak was there, rolling his countless scaly coils. And he gave a great roar in her father's own voice, which filled her heart with measureless anguish. And with that cry, sleep released its hold upon her. Quivering with fear, Medea started up, and she stared around the walls of her chamber. With great difficulty, she gathered her spirits within her, and she lifted her voice aloud. Oh, she said, how dark and terrifying are these gloomy dreams? Who are these heroes who's come from over the sea? They're going to bring some great evil down on my own head. And yet my heart, it, it hurts and it 
trembles for this, this stranger, Jason. What is he doing here? Let him go and woo some Achaean girl far away from among his own folk. Let me keep my maidenhood and my home here with my parents. The anguish tortured her. A smouldering fire that caught through her frame, she was torn, thinking first that she would give him the charms to cast a spell on the bulls. Then she thought that she should not. Then she thought she would she would rather die than carry this fire inside of her, forever unquenched, unanswered. But then she thought, what of the priesthood, her family, her father? She would have to endure this madness, this passion in silence. And starting from her bed, Medea brought out a casket wherein she kept many drugs, some for healing, some for harming. And she placed it on her knees, and she stared at it, and she wept. She longed to choose one of the murderous drugs and taste it, but suddenly a deadly fear of hateful Hades came upon her heart, and all around her thronged visions of the pleasing cares of life. She sat there in a trance as the sun grew sweeter than ever to behold in her window, seeing that in truth her, her soul did yearn for life, for life in everything. And as that morning sun rose, she pushed the casket away from her knees, all changed by the prompting of Hera. And no more did she waver in purpose, but she resolved, resolved to work the spells that she had seen in her dreams, to meet this Jason face to face. She gathered up her golden tresses which were floating around her shoulders in careless disarray, and she bathed her tear-stained cheeks, made her skin shine with ointment sweet as nectar. And she donned a beautiful robe, and above her head, divinely fair, she threw a veil gleaming like silver. And then, moving quickly through the palace, she bade her attendants to bear her to the beauteous shrine of Hecate, and for one of them to summon the stranger, Jason, to attend him. At the temple, Medea led the rites to her deathly queen. Yet in her songs and prayers she faltered and her eyes strayed ever over the heads of the handmaidens to the paths that approached the temple. And often did her heart sink in her chest when she fancied she heard a passing sound, a footfall, but it was just the wind. But soon after, he did appear to her longing eyes, striding over the path loftily, like Sirius coming up from the ocean, which rises fair and clear to see, but brings unspeakable mischief to flocks, and he was fair to behold, but the sight of him made her feel almost sick with her love. A dark mist came over her eyes, a hot blush covered her cheeks, and she had no strength to lift her knees, but her feet beneath her were rooted to the ground. And meantime, all her handmaidens had drawn away from so that Medea and Jason stood face to face, without a word, without a sound, like oaks or lofty pines, which stand quietly side by side on the mountains when the wind is still 
and then again, when stirred by the breath of the wind, they murmur ceaselessly to each other. So these two were destined to be, destined to tell out all their tale, stirred by the breath of love. Then Medea, speaking quickly, related to Jason all the things that he must do to gain the fleece, all of the things which she had seen in her dream. And when she was finished, she drew out the charm to smear on his body and sprinkle on his weapons. It was mixed from a flower which had grown beneath the rock where Prometheus's blood had fallen during his tortures. In the gloom of the night she had cut the root, its pith as raw as flesh, and the dark earth had shaken and bellowed. And then, as she pressed its dark juice into the hollow of a Caspian shell, the Titan himself had grown. she said, after you have the fleece, you must make at once for a place where your men will prepare your ship to flee. The king won't honour the challenge that he has set for you, because there is a prophecy that his kingdom will fall if he ever loses the fleece, so he will see you dead before he lets you escape with it. And everything happened just as Medea foretold. Jason performed every task, just as she had seen herself do in the dream. Until the moment came when Jason held the bright and divine shining fleece in his hands, and he threw it around his shoulders, and he turned, and he saw the ever-waking serpent that guards the oak rolling his countless scaly coils, and opening wide his great jaw to strike. Yet then, there was an unexpected sound. It was the voice of Medea. Medea was singing. Singing in sweetest voice to Hypnos, highest of gods, invoking the clouds of divine slumber. And the dragon bent his head to stare at her, hypnotized by her voice, and the soft yellow radiance that sparked in her eyes as she sang she sang until the dragon's great spine drooped and his coils unwound. And when he yawned his murderous jaws, Medea flourished a sprig of fresh-cut juniper, and with it she flung over his head in an arc a sleep-charmed potion, the potent scent of the water and the herbs spreading throughout the sweet air of the grove. And then Jason fled along the river to the waiting ship, and he dragged Medea with him. King Aetes and all his men gave chase, in countless numbers pouring along the banks of the river, shouting in their frenzy. And in his shapely chariot, Aetes shone forth above all of the men with his mighty steeds, the sun horses, the gift of Helios, which galloped as swiftly as the blasts of the wind. But they were not fast enough, because already the ship of the Argonauts was cleaving the sea before her, urged on by its stalwart oarsmen, and the stream of the mighty river rushing down 
Aetes shouted curses up to his father Helios and to Zeus to bear witness to the evil deeds done this day and terrible threats he uttered against all his people that unless they returned his daughter he would sate his terrible hunger for vengeance with their own blood. And above them all, Selene, the titan goddess, was rising over the horizon. And as the moon beheld Medea, fleeing the land of her birth, pursued by the army of her own father, she fiercely exulted, and she spoke from the depths of her heart. No longer is it just I, who burns with hopeless love for Endymion. Now you are caught up in the same mad passion. This I have wrought on you, for the many times when, with thoughts of love, I was driven away by your crafty spells, so that in the dark of night you might work your own magic at ease and have your own We'll see how you bear the hex. May you weep, Medea, and know what sorrow it is for a goddess to love a mortal. And a terrible thing it is, Odysseus, to be so diminished and robbed by love, to be its subject, its prisoner, to be its fool, much more so for one who comes from the family of the gods. For there was nothing that Medea would not do for the love of Jason. They sing now of the deeds of the Argonauts and of the hero Jason. What a joke. You see, it was not really Jason who yoked the bulls or slayed the stone men. It was Medea. It was not Jason who charmed the dragon. It was Medea. His body may have been the tool, but she was all the mind, the power, the strength of it. And much more than all of this she did. For when the Argo came to Crete, they found it guarded by a giant man made all of bronze called Talos, which hurled boulders at them and threatened to sink their ship. But Medea witched him and the bronze giant destroyed himself. When Jason returned home to find his father's throne usurped, it was Medea who seduced King Pelias's daughters into believing that they could make their father immortal by cutting him up and dropping the pieces into a magic cauldron. It was Medea who saved his crewmate Atlanta from death, and it was Medea who, the armies of King Aetes having caught up with them, and with her own brother at their helm. It was Medea who offered herself up as bait, so that Jason, sheep-hearted man as ever he was, had the opportunity to leap upon her brother from behind and kill him unawares. It was that deed that placed the stain of pollution on them, and which brought her to my shore and to my house. And though her crime was undeniable, as she was my kinswoman, I performed the rites, cleansed her of her sin. But would it be that she had stayed in my house, Odysseus, and rejoined then the family of the gods? But she would not leave Jason's side. She married him and returned with him 
first to its homeland, and then followed him into exile in Corinth. Where that led her, what happened then, I'm sure that you have heard, as all have. For Jason betrayed her. After pledging his love to her, after marrying her in secret, and even after she had borne to him children against her own desire, in the end, he did not have the heart himself to endure what she had endured. Loss, shame, exile, being stranger in a foreign land. And so, when they found themselves in Corinth, he made a pact to put away Medea and marry the daughter of Corinth's king, so that he could enjoy being a hero in the eyes of the world. He tried to soothe the bloody wound that he had struck her heart by saying that he had done it all for her, that it was all for the best. If Medea wanted a future for herself and for their children, she would be quiet, she would be thankful, she would be grateful. But Medea was not. She raged against the deceit and the dishonour of Jason against men and their lies, their hypocrisy, their cowardice. To the women of her house she cried, surely of all creatures on earth we women are the most wretched, who must exchange all that we are for the right to eat, to breathe, to exist in the world of men, to resign ourselves as subjects to their whims and cares before we ever even really know who they are before we know whether they'll dote on us or throw us aside. And above all else, to give them free reign over our bodies, to be vessels for their pleasure, their ambition and their legacy. I bore Jason his children, against my inclination, against my desire, for sake of his love, when honestly, I would rather have taken my place on a field of battle than bear one child. The matter is seed, stem, and branch. He is what those children will become. The heat which forged my loving vows now is replaced with the equal fire of my hate. To punish Jason will be just. And resolved to cold fury, Medea shut herself in her home and she built up fires upon her altars, and she prayed to the gods, and she prepared her vengeance. Into a casket she placed a golden coronet and a bright woven gown, the jewels and the threads of which she had soaked in acid potions. This she dispatched to the princess of Corinth as a bridal gift. As soon as that cask was opened, and the coronet and the cloth were lifted up towards the princess and her head. The potent potion hissed at once through the near air. It dissolved the eyes and the flesh of the princess and her father. While they screamed out their death agonies, Medea was bowed still in prayer at the altar. And out of the holy cloud of heaven appeared to her the goddesses, Hera and Hecate and Selene. And they made her understand all that had happened had been done in punishment 
for her audacity to try and turn the arts of magic against their own creators, against her sisters and kin and craft, for her hubris of seeking to lay a hex against the moon. But now her soul had been so vexed, they said, it was time for her to realise who she really was, to grasp her true nature, to resume her rightful place amongst the gods. Only first, she must throw off the shackles of humanity and scorn the things that were mortal. Refuse to be bound by anything so weak and so petty as the blood of any man, whether truly great amongst his kind or a mere coward like Jason. Medea understood their meaning. she called her own children to her. And once she had them within the chamber, she pulled the doors closed, drew them into her arms, and then she slid the sacrificial blade across their throats, and waited as the life drained out of them. Their limp bodies she threw on the altars, and as the flames consumed them, they spread, first through that chamber, and then through the whole of the house. And walking through the fires, climbing to the roof, Medea stepped aboard a bright chariot, filled with the radiant light of Hera and Hecate. And from outside the burning house, Jason gazed on in wailing horror and anguish as Medea rose up, born on the wings of the giants, to take her place in the high heavens. Such stories, my boy, did I hear from the lips of Kirky, when I shared the bed of that goddess. But when a year was gone, and the seasons had turned, and the long days of that year had made out their course, then my men, they began to think of home. And their talk put me in mind of Ithaca and my high-roofed house, of my child, of my wife, and so when the sun next set and darkness came on and all my men lay down to sleep throughout the shadowy halls of her house, I went up to the beautiful bed of Kirke and I told her that the time had come, that I must return to Penelope. In Hex the Moon, we look at the dreams of witches and sorcerers in Greek myth. In the company of the goddess Kirke, who has mastered the arts of sorcery and witchcraft, Odysseus learns about divination and prophecy and dreams, and he hears the story of another witch in the family of the gods, Medea of Colchis. Medea was infamous for her deeds of witchcraft and the dreadful revenge that she took on her lover Jason 
for his betrayal of her love, the slaying of their own children. At the opening of the episode, Odysseus and his men paid their dues to Hecate, the Greek goddess of witchcraft, and a titan who was associated with the moon. As well as witchcraft, Hecate had power over the night, over travellers, and over any crossroads where three ways met. She also blessed the home and was honoured in the Greek household. Her symbols included a pair of torches and a key, and she was often depicted as a triple form goddess with three faces that gazed down the paths of the crossroads. She was often said to rule over aspects of the whole world, the sky, the sea and the earth and the spiritual forces which bound them together. But in fitting with her character, she seems to have existed at the edges rather than the centre of the pantheon of the gods. She was a goddess of the spaces in between the different realms and domains of the world. Hecate's supper was a feast day which took place over three days of the new moon at the end of the monthly lunar calendar in Athens. During this time, Hecate was said to roam over the earth, accompanied by her spectral hounds and leading the spirits of the restless dead those who had been wrongly killed or remained unavenged. Food and offerings were left for the dead to eat, and this included any food or leftovers which had fallen to the ground inside the house, which were believed to be claimed by the dead. The offerings were placed in a shrine at the intersection between the house and the street, a symbolic crossroads. And the household cleansed themselves of any offence against Hecate by the ritual of transferring their sins or transgressions to a sacrificial hound, which was then killed on the altar, and then also by purging the home through cleaning, sweeping and fumigation. After laying out the offerings, the household went in and remained indoors to avoid any deadly or unfortunate meeting with spectres and apparitions on that night. It was often understood and even accepted, while still being somewhat taboo, that it was in fact not the dead, but the poor who would eat the offerings left out on the evening of Hecate's supper. The tale of Medea and Jason's romance comes to us in a work by Apollonius of Rhodes, the Argonautica. We know the story usually as Jason and the Argonauts. And it tells the story of how Jason and his men travel to the kingdom of Colchis to recover the Golden Fleece. This is at the behest of one King Peleus, who actually wants to see Jason dead on account of a prophecy which suggested that Jason would kill him. Jason's efforts, though, are supported by the goddess Hera because Peleus refuses to honour her. And Hera sends Eros, the god or demon of love, to the court of Colchis, ruled over by King Aetes. And Eros strikes Medea with one of his arrows the first time that she lays her eyes upon Jason. Later, she is visited by dreams in which she sees herself performing the trials set by her own father to dissuade Jason from his quest for the fleece. When they meet, Apollonius tells us how Jason too is caught up in the wind of love. Although Jason performs the trials set by Aetes, he does so by following the explicit instructions of Medea and enabled by magic charms and stratagems which he has given to her. And so Medea's dreams where she sees herself performing these tasks represent 
Medea later kills Jason's nemesis, King Peleus, in Iolcus, which leads to their flight to Corinth. And Jason quickly proves himself incapable of bearing the same kinds of shame, loss and indignity which Medea has endured for his sake. And so he enters into an arranged marriage with the Corinthian princess. He initially seeks for the safety and upkeep of Medea and her children, but he doesn't take a stand against her exile when she refuses to acquiesce to the new marriage. The story ends tragically with the death of Medea's children. Now in earlier versions of this myth, Medea does not deliberately murder her children. One writer reports there were up to five different accounts of how they died. One version is that Medea sacrificed them in Hera's temple in the full belief that they would actually be taken up to the heavens and divinized. Another says that her children were killed by the people of Corinth in an act of revenge for killing their king. It's only in Euripides that Medea slayed her own children as an act of spite against Jason, but this quickly became the definitive version of her story. After the death of her children, Medea was said to have fled from Corinth and gone to Thebes, where she aided the hero Heracles, and then on again to Athens, where she married a, where she married a man called Aegeus and had another son, Medus. The return of Aegeus's own long-lost son, Theseus, however, led Medea to try and murder him, and she was once again forced into exile. According to different authors, Medea and her son eventually returned either to Colchis or went to live in Persia. Apollonius's Argonautica tells us that it was Hera plotting with Athena and Aphrodite who sent Eros to inspire Medea's love for Jason and enable him to take the Golden Fleece. But it also mentions that Selene, the titan goddess of the moon, was pleased by this turn of events, because Medea had used her magic to make her fall in love with Endymion. Their story was told in our very first episode. And so our version of Medea's story here re-centres the myth on her by suggesting that Selene, that Selene herself conspired in Medea's downfall as punishment for this hubristic act. The name of the episode, Hex the Moon, is inspired by a contemporary social media controversy in modern witchcraft, in which practitioners condemned a younger generation for trying to cast a spell on the moon, at the risk, they said, of incurring the wrath of a higher power. In this episode, the killing of Medea's children is depicted as a rejection of her humanity and an embracing of her divinity and the chilly aloofness and amorality that that implied. Having been mistreated and dehumanised by Jason, Medea renounces her sympathy and her cares for human life. This is a particularly cruel interpretation in keeping with the Euripides version of Medea. We could have also imagined a version in which Medea does kill her children so that they can ascend to heaven. But this ending, all, but our ending mirrors the elements of the Euripides play, in which Medea's role, actions and words are like those of a divine character, who often interceded decisively but violently in human affairs at the end of Euripides' plays. She even announces the foundation of a religious cult, again acting in the capacity that gods often did. 
And so in this episode, Medea's story concludes with her rejoining the family of the gods and ascending to heaven in the company of a powerful triumvirate of female deities. Hera, Hecate and Selene represent and invoke Medea's connection as a sorceress to female power in the realm of the gods and to the role of the moon as a crossing between heaven, earth and the underworld. Next time on Lore and Legend, join us for the conclusion of Odysseus' story as he relates the tale of his darkest journey yet, beyond the horizon to the lands of dream and death, and comes face to face with his own ultimate fate. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 8, The General's Dream. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 11, Hex the Moon. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org, and you can find full audio credits at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and the research on their sources in world folklore, you can find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. On Facebook and Twitter, search for at of Law and Legend. If you like what you hear and you want to help us keep on making a great show, please consider supporting the podcast with a one-time contribution through Ko-Fi or supporting us regularly as a patron. You can find details on the website of how to do that. So once again, Sweet dreams, plain sailing, and thanks to you all for listening, story folk.